Welcome to the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. This ain't your grandma's podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, episode 21 here, your host, Aaron Batty. This episode, as always, is brought to you by 5-Minute Bible Study. Go check it out. Today, I'm giving you an episode entitled, Dating and Marriage Advice from a Single unmarried person. I don't know really of anybody more qualified to talk about what I'm I'm going to talk to you about today. I mean, I've not had a girlfriend for a little while. I'm not going to say how long. Um, I've not been married for 29 years. And um, there was actually one older lady that I heard recently who, who said, who asked somebody, has Aaron ever been on a date? Yes, I have been on a date before. Yes, I've had girlfriends. Um, no, I've not been married. But what we're going to be talking about is coming from the Word of God. It's coming from the Bible. So I, I'm pretty sure that God is the expert on dating and marriage. We'll go to Him. Okay, before we do that, I have a, uh, a commercial from Sweet Baby Frames coming up. So you'll want to check out this new, hot new product for your newborn. And then the episode's going to last about 50-something-odd minutes. Hope you enjoy it. Get back to me. Give me some feedback. What are your thoughts? What are some things that we didn't cover? I know this is a big topic, and there's a lot that we're not going to get to. So if you thought that there was something that needed to be added to the mix, maybe we'll do a follow-up on some more things uh, regarding dating and marriage. Well, let's get to our sponsors, and then we'll get into the main dish. We all know that pretty newborns just don't exist. Abraham Lincoln was once asked, by a woman if her baby was cute. And with an eloquent and dignified answer that only Abraham Lincoln could come up with, he said, no. Sweet Baby Frames knows this better than anyone, and so they got to work on developing a customized filter for iOS and Android camera software that will allow you to take a picture of a newborn without it breaking your camera lens. Amazing. That's not even the main selling point. They have over 100 customized newborn filters. Take a picture of your baby and then select a filter that will turn Frankenstein into a fairy princess. You've never really met half the people on Facebook and Instagram that you're friends with anyway, let's be honest. So they'll think that you actually had a newborn that doesn't look like a 99-year-old Danny DeVito. Go from being paranoid to carefree with one click of the camera from Sweet Baby Frames. Go to sweetbabyframes.fakenews.com today. Oh, welcome back on The Main Dish. It has been a while, but we are back at it. And today I want to talk about dating and marriage and just some things we can learn about this topic from really from one text of Scripture, Genesis chapter 2. And I've been wanting to talk about this for some time. I gave a talk at church about this very topic, some of the very same material, a lot of the same material that I'm going to be going over in this podcast episode. But I talked about this last Wednesday night. From when I was recording this, and it's something that I've I've thought of for a while. Some of these thoughts have been marinating in my mind, and then I went to Genesis chapter two, and I just read the text in combination with some thoughts I already had, and I asked myself, what is the text teaching us about marriage? Because in Genesis chapter two, there is the account of man and woman being created, and the conclusion of that is the institution of marriage in Genesis two and verse twenty four. What can we learn from all this? Now, I think this is an important thing for us to talk about because, well, in my experience, I didn't really get taught very well or very much, I'll put it that way, maybe just very much, about 
dating. And I kind of had to learn on the fly uh, how to date as a Christian. I had to learn about dating itself. Um, how we go about this in pursuit of marriage. That was something that I, through study of the Scripture, through experience, through trial and error, through making a lot of mistakes, I have learned from those mistakes, and I have learned more what not to do and what dating is not meant for and how to, how to not go about it. In the process of all of that, I have, over the last year, a little bit over a year maybe, been teaching a sermon called The Immoral Woman. And that sermon is the most popular sermon by far of any sermon I've given that's been posted on the internet um, on the Chapel Grove Church of Christ YouTube page if you want to go watch that. But through that sermon, I talk about sexual immorality. I talk about sex within the design that God made it within the context of marriage. It's a good thing. Outside of the context of marriage, it's not a good thing. It's considered immoral. Um, But I also talk in that sermon about pornography, sexual sin, lust, um, lots of stuff in there, some about dating. And when I give that sermon wherever I go, I make a point in there, and I'm very brief, but I just make a point that if you're dating an immoral woman, and at that point, I I take a little bit further and I say, if you're dating a non-Christian, then you need to dump that person, that boy or that girl immediately. And I make that point and I pretty much just move on. I don't dwell on it. Through the process, um, I've given that sermon four times maybe. Usually I get a lot of very positive feedback. People appreciate talking me, me talking on this subject because, as they say, I'm just quoting what other people say, that never gets taught on. Sex never gets taught on within the, con- within the context of Scripture and what God designed it for. Um, sexual lust, being, being ex- as explicit as the Bible is about it, doesn't get talked about very much. And and so I get a lot of positive feedback. In the same time, I usually get somebody who gets upset with me who, when I get to the point about you need to dump your non-Christian girlfriend or boyfriend if you fit this description and are here in this audience today. Because sometimes there's a Christian in the audience who has their non-Christian uh, significant other in the audience. And the parents will get upset with me that I said that. They never say that it was unbiblical. They never said that what I taught was not scriptural. They just get upset about it. And I would ask anyone who has that reaction to consider truly, why are you getting upset? And if what I, what I said is the truth and what I said is actually in the best interest of your child or your son, or if you're, you're the one, you're the actual Christian who's dating a non-Christian, and you're upset just simply because I stepped on your toes, I'm not trying to hurt people's feelings here. I am trying to talk about something that we rarely talk about in the pulpit or outside the pulpit, really, I feel like, and get to some hard truths, which unfortunately are going to hurt some people's feelings along the way as a natural result of the truth usually will step on some toes and hurt some feelings. That's a natural byproduct. So I want us to consider all that. In the process, I I gave that sermon last year, and there was a young man who messaged me on Instagram after I gave it some weeks after, and it really encouraged me. And what he did, he messaged me, and he said, after the meeting that you hosted, uh, I broke up with my girlfriend. And he meant he broke up with his non-Christian girlfriend. And I was very encouraged to hear that. And he said, I talked to some people about being accountability partners with me. 
I knew that I needed to do this for a long time, but you gave me that final push I needed. And I'm not reading this so you know you can hear all of the positives that he says about me. That's not what I want you to hear. I want you to hear that this young man had been thinking about this for a long time, he says, but he needed to hear it from somebody that was um, not himself, not his inner conscience, somebody, an outside force, an outside voice telling him what he already knew. And that was enough to push him over the edge. It wasn't like what I said was exceptional. Um, it had a lot of charisma to it, nothing like that. It's just the very fact that young people need to hear an outside voice, sometimes a little bit older than them, maybe a lot older than them, it doesn't matter, somebody that's telling them what they already know, what their conscience is pricking them with, but they need that extra encouragement to let them know that they're not alone, what they were thinking, yes, it is the truth, and push them to make that right decision. I was very encouraged by this young man. I told him, I said, thanks, man. You know, I, I usually get blowback on this. And uh, I think, you know, you have reinforced to me what I've already been thinking that I'm going to keep preaching this regardless of what people say. And I really appreciate you telling me that. And uh, his response, which I th- I've heard so many times, is it really helped me. I'm, I'm talking for him. It really helped me knowing that I wasn't alone in the issue. It's not talked about very often, and that's a major reason why it's such a huge problem, especially for guys my age. And so I'm so thankful that you continue to give that sermon regardless of the feedback, because I promise you people are affected by it. And a lot of people don't talk about this stuff because it's a problem that's embarrassing. It's really embarrassing, and they don't want to speak up about it. That's what this young man said. And so I, I took that to heart, and I listened to what he was saying, and I agree 100%. And after I gave this, after I've given these types of discussion sermons from the pulpit, whatever, inevitably there will be not, I mean, there's usually more positive than negative, really. And usually a parent will come up to me who's not upset with me. And they're very happy that I gave this the sermon. And I talked from the scriptures about these principles and these, these subject matters. And they'll come to me and they'll say, thank you very much for talking about that. I really appreciate it. Our young people need to hear it. If you're that person and and you hear this podcast even after the podcast, you have the same reaction. I want you to stop. I want you to listen to this real quick. I want you to, if you are truly appreciative of it, and you're appreciative of it because we don't talk about it enough, I want you to ask yourself, have you ever talked about this subject with your kids, if you have kids? If you haven't, then you're part of the problem. And you can be part of the solution immediately by talking about this with your kids, not just once, but on a semi-regular basis, bringing this up. It takes repetition to to learn these truths and these principles and for them to be molded into our behavior, for them to curb our behavior. Become part of the solution. Don't just come to the preacher. Don't just come to me and say, hey, I appreciate you telling me that because that's not doing anybody any good. If all that teenagers hear, if all that young people hear even those in their early 20s, whatever age, and they're single and they're in the dating game or what it has turned into, and they're in the dating world and the singleness world, they need to hear it from multiple voices. They don't need to just hear it from one voice. They need to be hearing the truth from multiple voices over and over. I would encourage if you're a preacher to be preaching on these things. So it's not just me preaching on these things. I'm not saying that I'm the only one preaching on it. I'm certain that other preachers are preaching on it, but nonetheless, from the feedback that I get, there's not enough. And so if you're a preacher, preach on these things. And uh, be part of the solution by discussing this with other parents. Make it a a semi-regular discussion topic. Send this to another parent and 
say, hey, listen to this. What do you think about it? Talk about it with your kids. Let's make this something that we talk about, because if we don't talk about it, the world certainly will, and they will be the educators for worse of our young people. Okay. Um, I want to read from Tavares Gray. He wrote a book that's on pre-release right now. You can order it. It's like 10 bucks or something on uh, ebook. It's a pretty good book called Godly Dating 101. I've only gotten the first three chapters as a preview from pre-ordering it. But he said this about his church culture, and I think this is very true of the church culture that I grew up with in the Church of Christ and still live in today. Listen up. He says, Growing up in the church, I paid attention to the way we addressed the convenient conversations but ignored the difficult subjects. Dating was a topic most leaders avoided. I found it amazing that I could be in the church approximately five days in my week but not hear anything about relationships. Unfortunately, the church remained silent on many of these issues, giving worldly culture a chance to be vocal on what to do, how to do it, and whom to do it with. So many lies were taught to us that are still normalized today. He could have been just as well speaking about that, specifically about the church culture that I am a part of today and, and grew up in. Now, when I was growing up, I don't ever remember, and I'm not saying that my parents or others didn't tell me more than this. I just, literally two things I remember being taught about dating growing up, and actually probably, well, three. I think I originally said two things, but three things that I was taught growing up. First of all, don't date outside the church. The second thing is don't have sex out of marriage abstinence till marriage. And the third thing was don't go off with a girl alone late at night. The common illustration would be in the backseat of a car, uh, dating groups, basically. Those three things were emphasized, but anything about dating beyond that, you were pretty much, it was fair game. It was, I guess it was just considered um, all cool. Just however you go about it, whatever tactics you use, how, you know, manipulation, whatever, you don't need to hear about how to date otherwise or how to go about it or how to view dating. Just, you know, go do it as long as you don't date outside the church, you don't have sex before marriage, and you don't go off uh, alone with a girl late at night, That then you're good. That's all you need to know for dating. And I would say if that's all that young people are hearing, then they're going to do what I did. What did I do? I dated lots of girls outside the church. I did go off alone with girls late at night. Um... No, I did not have sex before marriage. That's like the only thing that I listened to. And that was a thing that I wasn't going to cross that line. <laughs> I knew that one was really bad, right? So I'm not going to cross that line. But all the other ones I would cross, and I would cross them over and over, and I would feel, depending on how far I went with them, I would feel pretty well conscious free about them. What I picked up more on were, you know, there would be these young guys, and at the time I was, I was a young boy or I was a you know, middle school age boy, or I would get eventually into my teenage years, and I would look up to these these young men who were preaching and teaching at the young men's talks at these big meetings. And from watching them, I would observe and learn really more from what they were doing than from what others were saying minimally. Because what I was hearing people say, those three things that I just mentioned, was infrequent and sparse. But I would see this a lot, and I would see this more than what I heard. What I saw was date a lot. Dating was like a game. In fact, I remember there was um, <laughs> there was a group of guys at a meeting one time, and they were close to my age, and they they had a competition going that night at the skating rink where we were all at. I think it was on a Springfield Fourth of July meeting, and they were had a competition of who could skate with the most girls. Now, that in and of itself may be innocent. Fine, I'm not saying that they were like super bad because they did that. Um, that's just dating, you know. 
or that's just uh, skating around in a circle. Big deal. But that same mindset inevitably does get carried over into how they date. Let's see who, who can date the most girls, who can go on the most dates. And, and that turns dating into a game. Let's date for fun, not date for marriage. Let's go on as many dates as we can. Let's, let's uh, test the pool out and, and wade in the water just a little bit because we want to make sure that we're not uh, starving ourselves of some potential love matchmaking, right? So let's date for fun just for fun itself and for making sure that we're not um, we're not leaving anything out on the table, right? Date a lot and don't settle too long on one girl because if you get too serious with one girl, well, that's just, stu- that's just stupid and unwise. You need to date around, date a lot. Um, f- eventually, date one girl when you get more serious about actually marrying somebody, right? Okay. Another one, make out with lots of girls and talk about it as if that makes you cool. Or if, if, as if, you know, that's some honor badge or something. And finally, marry young primarily to satiate your sexual appetites. And, and then what I would do is I would sit back and I would see people that marry young. And I still do. Marry young. They didn't date very long. Maybe they dated for an entire year. doesn't matter. But they didn't have, obviously, they didn't have the crucial conversations that you need to have with each other. They didn't observe the signs and symptoms that were just no doubt in my mind, staring them in the face the whole time because they were so blinded by love. And, oh, they love this person so much. And then the marriage just burst into flames in two years because they didn't have these conversations, these crucial conversations during this dating relationship. They were dating more out of lust than they were out of preparing for marriage. And all the other things combined just uh, create a recipe for disaster. Um. I can count on one hand how many conversations I had with an adult or sermons or studies that I heard where biblical principles addressing dating came into play. And, um, and, and really what it comes down to is that modern dating is not preparation for marriage. And what you see in church culture is you see dating for fun eventually turning into dating for marriage. But primarily it's dating for fun. And in the Bible we're going to find out that the idea of the modern idea of dating is not in the Bible. And it leads to a lot of sin. It leads not only to that, but a lot of emotional hurt. And it does affect uh, people that you um, make these mistakes with. The, the big, the bigger thing about mistakes that you made in dating, you know, if, if you, for example, um, look, have a pornography addiction, you know, that's wrong and it's going to hurt you but it's only going to hurt you as long as you're single and as long as it's private and all that. And I'm not saying this makes it better. No, it doesn't make it better. I'm just saying you're the only one hurt. But when you make mistakes in a dating relationship, and if, and if part of that is if you're looking at porn um, and you marry somebody, that is going to affect more than you. But going back to the point, if you, if you make mistakes in general in a dating relationship, that is not just going to affect you. That's going to have compound interest effect on the other person that you're dating. You're going to cause potentially emotional pain for them and struggles for them. And when you consider that these people, I de- hopefully they are members of the church and, and that you're affecting in a negative way another member of the church potentially by the way that you treat them, assuming that you are mistreating them. And that is something that really needs to be taken into account when we talk about what is dating, how are we going about it, and uh, all the above, all, all that goes with that. So without, 
Without going more into introductory remarks and whatnot, let's get into the chapter, Genesis chapter 2. And let's draw from it. I have five things or uh, six things that I drew from the text, and we'll talk through these. If you've heard the sermon, then you already know what the six points are. But um, some people listen to this podcast that don't follow the Chapel Grove YouTube page. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 15 through 24. Here it is in the New King James Version. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. So he had a job to tend and keep the garden. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper comparable to him. And then we keep on reading, and it says that all these animals came to him, and he named them, but, verse 20, for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, and this is a commentary statement by Moses to the people of his day, based off of the history that I just told you, Moses is saying, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so he's explaining where the the uh, the premise, the, the background for the marriage relationship that they understand in their day came from. It came from God creating woman for man. Um, now, if you just read the text and you ask yourself, what can I learn from this? There are more than six things you can learn from it, but we're going to draw six, and I want to um, talk about a couple of these up front together. Actually, let's talk about some of the obvious things and get these out of the way first. First of all, this is obvious. We're not going to dwell on these, but nonetheless, we do have to address these because in our culture today, these are things that are just so confused. And if you just read the text and you're honest with yourself, you'll understand that some of the things that are confused about marriage and sex today is because of our culture, and it's not from reading the text of Scripture. Granted, a lot of people that come to these conclusions don't even believe in God, and they don't believe in Scripture. But nonetheless, first thing you can look here is that God gave Adam a woman. In Genesis 2, to 23, it says she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's these two people, woman and man. And when God created woman, he created a human adult female with female sexual body parts for Adam, a man, with male sexual reproductive body parts. There was no confusion in the Bible. There was no gender confusion in the Bible. And, and Jesus reaffirms this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5, about the marriage relationship that's between one man, a, a human adult male, and one woman, a human adult female, when he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He is alluding back to Genesis 2 and verses 22 to 24 when he's talking about the institution of marriage in Matthew 19 and verse 5. There was no gender confusion in the Bible. Jesus even establishes the new covenant laws of marriage based on a gender binary, male and female, and opposite sex marriage. So let's just get that out of the way, okay? Now, uh, let's just move on to the other thing that's very obvious here, I feel like. Um, 
And I'm not going to dwell on this one a lot, but I just want to get the obvious ones out of the way. God created marriage to be an inseparable relationship between this man and this woman, an inseparable relationship. Rereading Genesis 2 and verse 24, uh, the text says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined. The word there, joined, literally means to, to be stuck together, to be glued to his wife, and they should become one flesh. Now we do talk about, well, as we don't talk about dating and sex a lot, we do talk about divorce and remarriage a lot, because those issues do come up a lot, and they do affect the church. And we do have to talk about those things, and it is important. I'm not downplaying that. I do want to reiterate because of that, in fact, that this is an inseparable relationship. And when we marry somebody, it's not with the disclaimer in the back of our mind that, oh, well, we can always divorce if it doesn't work out. That's a worldly mindset. That is a, a mindset that God never intended for marriage relationships to operate under. Okay, those are two things. Marriage uh, was an inseparable relationship from its origins, and also marriage was between a man and a woman. One man and one woman, okay? Now let's get into a couple of things that are a little bit more subtle, but they're there. In fact, the first one's really not that subtle. The first one is the fact that singleness was not God's ideal. I want to talk about this for a little bit, and then I want to talk about it in relation to the next point, which I'll bring up. It's closely related to it coming up next. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, the Bible says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. So God told, you know, in verse 15, he told Adam to tend and keep the garden. And at that point, it's just Adam. And he was alone. And if you're single, I want you to understand this. If you're single and you're lonely, there's a God-given reason for this. That's, that's supposed to happen. Note that Adam, he was alone, and certainly he, he must have felt loneliness before sin ever entered the world. And a lot of people might think, just off the top of their head, that loneliness was in some way some curse of sin, and people didn't feel lonely before the fall in Genesis 3. Adam Eve didn't feel lonely before. But loneliness, him being alone, was present before the fall. It's not a curse of sin. It is a God-given feeling, in fact, to remind you that you are not in your ideal state when you are by yourself. There are some exceptions to that rule. Paul will bring those up. Jesus will bring those up in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. There are some exceptions to the rule, but they are exceptions to the rule. And the rule is that God's ideal state for man and woman is to find one another, marry, and spread the glory of God, God throughout the world together in a one-flesh relationship in a way that you cannot do when you are single. Again, except some exceptions may apply. And so loneliness is God's way of reminding single people of that concept. I do want to say something about this, though. I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine after I, I gave this initial sermon, and we were talking about this. And he brought up the fact, and I do want you to understand this, when I'm saying that loneliness is not God's ideal for you, I am not saying marry just to get married. And I'm also saying that there are not exceptions to the rule. There are. And there are actually great things you can do for God and the kingdom of God being single that you cannot do, and you would not be able to have that impact if you were married. Now, me, for example, I'll pick on myself. I'm single. I'm 29 years old. A lot of people in my life have 
come to the conclusion already that I'm never going to get married. <laughs> now, um, I, I still think I have some time. I still think that that's not a foregone conclusion. 29, not that old. But nonetheless, um, you know, there are people that consistently, and they don't do this anymore because, again, they've come to the conclusion I'm not going to get married, my mom being one of them. They would always ask me, hey, are you dating anybody? Hey, are you talking to anybody? Hey, do you have a girlfriend? Um, some people might even jokingly ask, hey, are you ever going to get married? And what that is, that's them being conscious, they're conscious of the fact that God did not intend, ideally, for a man and a woman to live a single life as the rule. So they're asking those questions, and they probably don't mean anything by it, but there are some individuals who they take that and they they hear it over and over, and it makes them feel like that they cannot really help the kingdom of God unless they're married. They really can't be valuable or useful or what they should be unless they were to get married. And so they might wallow in this state of singleness, and it, and that really just leads to uh, a snowball effect of wallowing and misery, and that certainly decreases their ability to, to help the kingdom of God and spread His glory, right? Because of this just growing state of misery. And they're constantly reminded of that when people ask them that. So be, be mindful of that when you ask single people, especially... <laughs> I'm not saying this for myself. I really block it out. I really am not affected, I promise. But uh, other people are not the same as I am in that regard, specifically that particular regard. Um, I will say this, just to give all you single people out there who are lonely some consolation and some... The word um, slips in my mind. But I do get lonely sometimes. <laughs> yes, it's true. Sometimes I'm at my house by myself in the evenings, especially, you know, the evenings are always a little more sullen, just in general. Um, people that have depression, which I don't have depression, but people that have depression will always describe that in the evenings it's worse, you know, because they're alone. Um, and so you're reminded that you're alone, you know, you're all by yourself in the evening, which is when families would normally spend time together, but you don't have a family. So, you know, you're thinking, man, I really am alone. There's no Braves game playing to distract me. <laughs> There's nothing really exciting going in my life on this particular night, and you feel lonely. I feel it too. And that does remind me that I'm not in my ideal state. And I'll explain in, in the next point why you're not in your ideal state, exactly what I mean by that. But I do want to remark about all that I've said in regard to Genesis 2.18, Adam was alone, and loneliness is God's way of reminding you, blah, blah, blah. Again, I want to really iterate, do not marry just to be married. I know people who have done this, and it is one of the worst decisions you can ever make. If you do this, it will have very, very likely um, terrible impacts on the rest of your life. People that married for dumb reasons like this are Esau. He was already, he married some bad girls. His mom and dad didn't like it, so he married some girls that were from his clan that he thought his mom and dad would like. And um, that, that didn't help anything. It didn't help anything. He was marrying for the wrong reason. Solomon married lots of women, and perhaps, potentially, perhaps he was lonely. He married lots of women. I'm sure there were other things involved. But they married to get married, and when you look at these men's lives, Samson being another one who didn't get married, but he was a womanizer, and their lives were negatively impacted greatly because of their marriage relationships, because they did not follow God's formula and God's blueprint 
for marriage and God's motivations for marriage. Do not marry just so you're not single. That is one of the reasons why I'm still single today is because I refuse to get married just so I'm not lonely. I'm not going to do that. I've made it a commitment in my mind that I'm not going to do that. And you have to stick to your guns on that no matter what. And it does take a lot of commitment. It does take constant reminder, but don't marry just to get married. Okay, we're going to we're going to leave that one and move on. Another related point that I want to talk about in relation to this is um, it's the, uh, here it is, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Here's the fourth point, and that is that God gave man a purpose before he gave him a wife. And I'm drawing this from Genesis 2.15, which is where the Bible says, the Lord God placed the man in the garden to tend and watch over it to tend and to keep it. God gave Adam the mission to tend the garden. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, it says, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. So he was tending the garden. He was having dominion over the earth. He was subduing it. He was doing all these things that God told him to do before there was ever a woman. God gave him this mission before he ever gave him Eve, and he was about doing it. And so some animal would come up, scratching its armpits, had a long furry tail, and he would say, you know what, you're a monkey. And then another one would come up, oinking, with a curly tail, really fat animal. He said, you're a pig, and so on. And while he's doing all this, God, that's when God, not Adam, the text doesn't indicate, but God looks down and notices there is no companion comparable to Adam, like Adam. And so that's when God realizes Adam's alone, and not like God, it dawned on him. He knew this already, obviously, but the Bible describes it, that God looks down and says he's alone, he needs a helper. But before God did that, he's just, Adam's down there doing, he's just about work. We call it grinding today. He's down there grinding, man. <laughs> he's He is clocking in every morning at 6 a.m., and he's about the mission that God gave him to do. And if you're a single person today, you are not unvaluable to the kingdom of God. You are invaluable to the kingdom of God, even single. And what I meant before about you're not in your ideal state, I want you to think about this. When you have two people who are single— and they've been about the Father's business. That's how the Gospel of Luke describes Jesus at 12 years old in the temple. He said to Mary and Joseph, I must be about my Father's business. And when you have two single people, a man and a woman, and they've been about their Father's business, they understand, God gave me a purpose before He has even yet given me a wife or a husband. And they're about the Father's business, and they are grinding. <laughs> They're clocking in at 6 a.m. every day on their spiritual shift. When those two people meet together and they become one flesh and they join to spread the glory of God, to subdue the earth together, the maximized potential of those two people together is like you can't even imagine with them single and apart. And um, that's what I mean. That's what I mean when I say that you're not in your ideal state, and ideally, God did not design you to be alone, with some exceptions to the rule. And that's why marriage is such a beautiful thing, 
and within the plan of God. Um, so anyways, that's, that's point number four. I'll reiterate it, that uh, God gave man a purpose before he gave him a wife. Be about your purpose. So we'll summarize real quick what we've said so far, and we got two more points, and then we'll be done. Uh, first, God gave Adam a woman, a human adult female. Second thing is God created marriage to be an inseparable relationship. Thirdly, um, God, or rather singleness, was not God's ideal. And fourth, God gave Adam a purpose before he gave him a wife. Be about your purpose. Okay, the fifth thing is that, uh, I'm going to go to this one next. God didn't give Adam several women to date around with for fun. Uh, make out with them to satisfy his sexual urges, and then eventually get serious about marriage and settling for one of them. Now, I said all of those things precisely in the way that I did for a very good reason, because that is exactly what happens in a lot of dating today. And when I talked about modern dating in the introduction, I'm talking about that's what it looks like. You won't find this modern concept of dating in the scripture. Now, dating, whatever you want to call dating, if you want to apply biblical principles I believe there is a construction where you can take biblical principles of preparing for marriage, and you can call that dating, and there are people that do it today. And yes, you know, depends on—I'm just saying, what do you mean when, you, when you're using the word dating? If you mean what I just described, where you date around with a bunch of women for fun, you go a little bit farther than you should, which is gratify yourself sexually at all before marriage, and then finally get serious about settling down for one, then you're not doing anything that you can find in the Bible— and I especially want to say this, if you are a young man and you are a young um, aspiring evangelist of all people, you ought to understand this and start practicing it immediately. And if you're not, if you're not, then you ought to be ashamed of yourself. This is something that I, as a young aspiring evangelist, uh, somebody that was teaching in the pulpit of the church, I was not following this, this uh, understanding, th- this, this fifth principle. I was not following it, and I'm ashamed of it looking back. But it took getting my eyes open to come to this conclusion. And I, and I wish I would have been ashamed of it at the time, but I wasn't. I didn't know any better. Um, Vadi Bakken, I've just got to, to read this quote from Vadi Bakken. It's just a fantastic quote. He says, Modern dating is no more than glorified divorce practice. Young people are learning how to give themselves away in exclusive, romantic, highly committed, at times sexual relationships only to break up and do it all over again. And that's what you're doing when you're dating for fun, dating as many girls as you can so you make sure that you're not leaving any meat out on the table. And then finally, when you get about 25, you finally get out of college and all that, then I'll get serious about marriage. Now, I don't know who, I've changed my mind on this over the years, and I don't know, maybe this, maybe I'm just uh, got an opinion here, I don't know who decided that, first of all, you have to wait till you're done with your college degree to get married. Um, some people are going to hear this and think that, that that's still the right thing to do. But I, I'd say that that's fine as long as you're not dating for fun in the meantime and you're not taking the what you cannot find in the Bible and practicing that because inevitably, if you are just dating for fun, you are going to do things that you should not be doing with this significant other. I know it from experience. You will, you may not have sex with them, but you'll do everything up to having sex with them. You, you, um, I can't even go into as much detail as I would like to, 
because I, uh, you know, some things just are better left to private conversations, but we'll just leave it at that. You will inevitably do things that you should not be doing with them because your goal is not to marry this person. Your goal is simply to entertain, uh, feed your emotions for a little bit, give it a little bit of food, uh, just to keep those sexual, um, urges satisfied. So you don't actually have sex, but you keep those sexual urges just teased a little bit. That's what dating for fun is. And unfortunately, that is going to hurt your brother in Christ if you're a girl doing this to a brother in Christ. That is going to hurt your sister in Christ if you're a boy doing this to your sister in Christ. And it's going to, uh, I, I totally believe that's going to be something that you give account for on the day of judgment. If you do not repent of this, uh, it is certainly not bearing one of those burdens. It's certainly not treating another with kindness. It's certainly not loving one another like Christ loved the church. Um and like the Apostle John tells us to love our brothers and our sisters. And so we have to think about in this dating relationship that this is my my uh, sister in Christ. This is my brother in Christ. And the rules of how to treat your brother and sister in Christ do not just go on freeze because you're dating and, and rules just don't apply. And these are the types of things we got to talk about in more detail. How do you play, be a little more specific here, and how do we, how do we play that out? Well, I'm not an expert in dating, and this is where parents... And others need to come in. Let's talk about this stuff. That's what I'm ta- saying. We need to talk about this stuff so that young people do have an actual uh, specific examples and instructions on how to go about dating without taking advantage of each other, without causing emotional harm, without causing physical harm, without uh, feeding sexual lust and um, creating a bunch of bad habits or just sins before you get married, and finally settle down with one. Okay, number five, God didn't give Adam several women to date around with for fun. Number six, and the last one, and um, where are we here? Here we go. Number six, God didn't give Adam a woman that was lost spiritually. Okay? This is the last one I want to end with, and it's the longest one, really. God didn't give Adam a woman that was lost spiritually. Now, before you start saying, wait, 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 I I understand. I did not say that God gave Adam a perfect woman because obviously she ate the fruit. She was not perfect. I'm not saying that, that, but the woman that God gave him did not have sin. She was not lost spiritually. She was the equivalent of what we would call today a Christian, at least in their time. And, uh, and so that's what I mean. God didn't give Adam a w- woman that was lost spiritually. Now, when a, a Christian boy dates a non-Christian girl, what's really happening, let's just be honest, what's really happening is that the non-Christian girl is converted to the Christian boy before she's ever converted to Jesus Christ. She's not. Nine times out of ten, there again may be exceptions to the rule, but you are very... You are not the exception in the rule. She's converted to the boy before she's ever converted to Jesus Christ, if she's ever converted to Jesus Christ. And when it, this is the way it is, it can truly be said that the Christian boy converted the girl. Christ didn't convert the girl. Everything that I just said should magnify the importance of a non-Christian being converted to Christ before romance ever comes in the picture. And so here's the deal. You know, I know some, some Christians who have gotten into friendships with somebody that's not a Christian, which is fine, you know, be friends with people that aren't Christian. I'm just saying, be friends with them, don't date them, (laughs) and especially don't marry them. 
Um, but they become friends with these non-Christians, and they tell them up front, and I can respect this. They tell them up front, listen, I ain't going to date you unless you're a, a Christian, unless you become a member of the church. And they get it up front. That's going to turn away all the people that are seriously not interested. Now, there might still be some stragglers left behind, but they are going to know you are serious about this. A lot of people, they'll say, I'm not going to marry you until you become a Christian. Well, you've already been dating them for three, four months, however, when you tell them that. And they're thinking, okay, I don't know if they're serious. When you say, I don't, I'm not even going to date you until you're a Christian, that's letting them know this dude is serious or this girl is serious. And that will do the triage process for you. I know a lot of Christians who were um, you know, converted by somebody that was a Christian and then they got married. And they're, they're very strong Christians, and those are great marriage relationships looking in from the outside. I even know one where, and this wasn't the ideal, where the, the Christian dated a non-Christian. I'm not recommending that. This is, this is foolishness. Even though this particular marriage today is a success, that was foolish. And if you ask these people, the, the Christian that is, if you ask a Christian, when you dated that person who was a non-Christian, when you married them, were you, would you say that you were a strong Christian? 99% of the time, they're going to say, no, I was not. Or you say, was that smart? Was that wise what you didn't know? 99% of the time, some people are still blind to the fact. But what happened in that particular relationship is that they converted their uh, girlfriend, or well, their wife, and then the wife converted them because they were so weak spiritually that li literally the person that they married was Actually, at the point of them being saved, they were more, they were stronger than the person who had been raised in the church their whole life. So that happens from time to time. It doesn't, it does not change the fact of the matter that it is so stupid to date a non Christian. It is even more stupid to marry one. I'm not saying it's a sin, but I do want to bring your attention to Amos chapter 3 and verse 3. In Amos chapter 3 and verse 3, it says, let me turn over there, hold on. Uh, here, Amos is talking about how judgment for the northern tribes of Israel is certain. God is talking, Amos talking for God. And he says in verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. And, and what he goes on to do is, he's telling him, judgment for you, I'm going to punish you. It's so certain that I'm going to punish you. It's as certain as the answers to these, I think it's seven questions that he then goes on to ask them. Seven rhetorical questions. The first question is, can two walk together unless they're agreed? What's the answer? The answer is obviously no. If two people are not in agreement, they're not going to continue walking down the same path. That's why people break up all the time, since we're talking about dating. It's obviously true. No, they're not going to. This is obvious. You don't have to have horse sense even to get this. Uh, anybody understands the answer to this? It's so obvious that and God uses the a question that to the Israelites, anybody understands the answer. No, you can't walk together unless you're agreed to lead them to the obvious conclusion that as sure as that is, you are going to be punished. Tragically. Now, if that's true, let's back up for just a minute. We know and we agree that two people can't walk together unless they're agreed. So instead of walking together, let's just date. <laughs> it 
Instead of walking together, let's go a step further. Let's just get married. Let's become one flesh. I know we can't walk together, but let's become one flesh. That'll work. And somebody wants, they always ask the question, but is it a sin? And that's what they want to know. Is it a sin? Because if it ain't a sin, and if you can't show me a passage that says I'm going to hell unless I'm doing it, then you just keep your uh, man-made traditions to yourself. Well, I've never said that it's a sin. But I am telling you that if you marry a non-Christian, and if you date a non-Christian, you're going to have to live with consequences for the rest of your life. Now, right now, you don't have children. You're not even thinking about children. But when you become 50 and 60 years old and your children are not Christians, I know so many Christians who married a non-Christian that started with them dating a non-Christian, and today they have so many regrets. And one of them was an old man that I knew very personally. His name was Buddy Brumley. Buddy Brumley was just a great Christian man, um, and he would write to me. When my family was in Russia, he came and visited us in Russia, and uh, he would write to me when I was like six years old. My mom would have me correspond back to him by email, and the one thing that he told me over and over at six years old, and then repeatedly after that, was marry in the church. Because what this man did is he married somebody that was not in the church, and he wrote me this letter back. I I wrote him a letter. Uh, I was around 24, 25 at the time. I had made a lot of foolish decisions. I had dated a lot of girls out of the church. I wrote to Brother Buddy Brumley, and I said, Brother, I want to tell you thank you for telling me over and over, don't marry out of the church, because that was something that I remembered. In the back of my mind, through all these relationships, I knew that I wasn't going to marry this person. I shouldn't have been even dating them. I agree. I was stupid. But in the back of my mind, I remembered what he told me over and over, and I never forgot. And I wrote him that letter, and I said, Thank you, brother, for reminding me that. He wrote me back. Two years before he passed away, he passed away last year, I think it was. He said, there would be less sorrow in the world if the whole wide world, uh, or if every young boy followed the words of Solomon. He said, Aaron, I'm glad that you took my advice about marrying some girl out of the church. I wasn't taught well enough on that subject. We had preachers that taught the truth, but at that time I thought I knew all there was to be known about the marriage question. And so I played the fool and I paid the consequences for that mistake. I got a girl one that knew the scriptures, but I thought that when we got married, she would see the right way and come over to the correct way, he said, but that didn't happen. So don't ever marry out of the church. It's wrong, he said. You'll be much more blessed, even if you have to wait longer than you think. Make me happy. Marry a girl in church. You'll see when you get to be 86.6 that you'll have made the right choice. He illustrates one of three types of marriages that I know and that I have witnessed, and, and they're sad. Uh, one of them ends happy, but two of them don't. The first type of marriage is where a Christian marries a non-Christian, obviously out of the church, and the non-Christian comes to church with them for, I know one that came to church with his wife for 25 years. Finally, after 26 or 27 years, he finally got baptized, and he was a faithful member of the church, still is today, he's still alive. The second type is where the non-Christian marries the Christian. The non-Christian comes to church with his wife for 50 years, never obeys the gospel in that case. And that's sad. And finally, there's the non-Christian who marries the Christian, and the non-Christian never does grace the doors of the church building, never obeys the gospel. They have three kids who never obey the gospel. 
And then they grow up to be 86 years old and they look back on it and they're trying to warn everybody that they know and has breath in their lungs, make the right decision to marry a Christian. And, and by the way, I want to disclaim this. Don't just marry any Christian because there are some Christians who are just as unrighteous as any heathen out there. And there are several of them. So don't just ma- marry any Christian. There are plenty of unrighteous Christians who will take you to hell just as quick as any immoral woman, and they'll take your children to hell with them too. I'm not saying marry just to get married. I already said that. Marry a Christian who is a righteous Christian, not perfect, but a child of God who is faithful to him in all things and will uh, combine with you to be about the Father's business and spread the glory of God together throughout the world in a way that you never could have single each of you a single and separate. That's my advice. That's that's uh, not just my advice. I, I hope that you see that I use Scripture for what I was saying. I try, try not to go beyond Scripture, even though sometimes I might be compelled to. I, I tried to limit myself and not go beyond Scripture, and that what I said was not only right but wise, and maybe I pushed you over the edge. Share this with other people. Let's talk about this. If you're a parent, you agree. Let's talk about this with your children, with other parents. Let's talk about it. And... Let's, uh, let's do better in the next generation and generations about informing our youth on biblical principles of dating and marriage.